so here is something that all of us have in common. And uh, that is this, is that we all have those embarrassing uh, moments in our past uh, that were humiliating in the moment. And, uh, but, you know, weeks, months maybe, years later, uh, you can look back on them, tell the story, and laugh about it. And we got those, uh, sorry, yep, yep, yep. Then you've got those things um, in our past that are so humiliating and uh, so shameful Right, that uh, not only do you not ever laugh about it, but you do everything you can to never even think about it. Anybody got those? Jeremiah has one of those. Yeah, so a couple weeks ago, our sign out front in the Y got pulled up and folded up and chucked over into the bushes a couple roads down. And uh, I was just racking my mind, like, how would, why would somebody just randomly yank up a sign and throw it around? I stayed up half the night trying to think of all the different scenarios that triggered it. And so I'm telling Brad all about it, and Jeremiah shows up uh, a couple weeks ago to set up his camera, and he's like, oh, yeah, I'd have done that. Can't process. <laughs> that's, a, that's, some, that's some embarrassment you should keep in the past. <laughs> but we all have those things. And sometimes you feel different about them down the road. Sometimes you don't. And the interesting thing about this and, and, and about where we're going uh, today in our narrative is this, is that Peter had one of these moments, right? And the reason we know that he had one of these moments is because Peter told us, hey, I had this moment, right? And, and, and he wanted us to know, listen, there, there, there is a place that when you have those moments and when you have those things and those become part of your history and what make up what you are and where you're going, when you have those, there is a safe place where you can take those things, right? We can take what is shameful and we can leave it somewhere safe. And so I think that's why Peter put in this part of the story today. He wants us to know our past and our actions in the past do not define us. Right, that, that we, so here we, here we go. That, that, I mean, just that, I could say that. And that alone is good news to a lot of people. Um, so if you're carrying around something shameful, uh, I cannot tell you how glad I am that you're here today, that you're watching this uh, online, uh, that we're gonna be able to talk about what to do with that. So over the last several weeks, uh, we have been looking at uh, Peter's account of his experience with Jesus and how 30 years after that account, after he had spent those 30 years just telling anyone who would listen his story of his time with Jesus, he finds himself in Rome, uh, waiting trial, uh, approaching the end of his life. And uh, he's with his traveling companion, Mark. And Mark coaxes the story out of him one more time so that he can write it down so that the story is saved uh, for generations beyond just those who heard Peter tell the story uh, in person. And when Peter's telling his story, he puts Jesus's message, like we've said every week, right up front. He's like, and Jesus' message, not only does he put it up front, but he's like, this was consistently and over and over again, Jesus's message the entire time. And that message was, the time has come. The kingdom of God has come near, which means God is close to you, not far away. So repent and believe the good news. And the good news was, I have come to earth so that you can know what God is like. And I have come to earth to interpret for, to reinterpret for you what your heavenly father is like. 
Now, it was one thing to believe that Jesus was sent from God. A lot of people were able to kind of wrap their minds around that. Um, but it, the most difficult thing for Peter to believe, uh, for first century Judeans to believe, for even us to believe, is that the, the, the way Jesus was, that Jesus didn't just come to explain God to us, that God is like what we saw in Jesus. Which for so many people, the image of God is not Jesus. Jesus is kind of this separate piece of God or this separate thing that they're like, okay, like I can get down with that dude, but the whole vengeful killed people in the Old Testament, like all of that type of God, like that stays people's image of what God is. And Jesus, you know, he said it, no, 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 no. He said it this way. He said, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. We're the same. We are the same. And perhaps, perhaps for some of us, the reason that we have had such a hard time with faith is that maybe we didn't fully understand the message of Jesus and what he was bringing and doing. Because the message of Jesus and the message of Christianity is so much more than you go to heaven when you die. And it used to make me angry and frustrate me when I would watch churches and people like that was what they thought it was all about. I've got my insurance ticket into heaven and so now I've just got to hide and bunker myself from everything else or judge anybody who doesn't have it. And it used to make me mad and angry. Now it makes me sad when I see people experiencing their faith in that, uh, in that realm, in that perspective because there's so much more. Because the, the message of Jesus was, if you want to know what God is like, keep your eyes on me because I'm showing you what he's like because God wants more than just to be an insurance policy. He wants relationship with you, which was a radically different idea than any way that the Jewish people had approached God up to that point. Now, in Peter's account of his experience with Jesus, um, as we've made it through so far, they've made their way all the way from Caesarea Philippi, way up north above Galilee, all the way down to the city of Jerusalem. And uh, they have been in the city for about a week, getting ready for the Passover festival. And the best way to describe Jesus's actions through the week is that he has been, um, he basically has spent a week disturbing the peace. <laughs> it's probably the best way I can describe it. Right? Uh, he would, uh, you know, and this was troublesome to the disciples because the disciples knew that if Jesus was going to declare his kingship and establish his new kingdom here in Jerusalem, we need friends in Jerusalem. And Jesus spent a lot of time agitating. He would day after day after day that week go to the temple and would say and would teach and would do the strangest things. And in some of those instances, he humiliated the religious leaders with their own words. Then finally, finally, he gathers the 12 together in the upper room for the Passover meal, where they assume it's going to be the big reveal of him as the Messiah, where he's going to establish himself as king and a new kingdom is going to be established. And Jesus reveals something, all right. <laughs> but it wasn't what they expected. We talked about this last time. Here's what Jesus said. While they were eating, Jesus took the bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, take it, this is my body. Pause and side-eye to each other as they almost had the bread in their mouth. His body, what the? 
Jesus, what are you talking about? Right? Then, then he took the cup. And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them. And they all drank from it. He probably saw the pause before they ate the bread. Thought, ah, oh, I said it too soon. Let them drink out of the cup so that it was too late. <laughs> and then he says, oh, by the way, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. A covenant between God and everybody. Everybody. But they were thinking, yeah, yeah, yeah. A covenant's fine. But we don't need a covenant. We need a kingdom. We thought you were going to be a king. So if you remember at the end of last week, they head out from the upper room, they head to the garden of Gethsemane where uh, Judas shows up with the uh, temple henchmen to have Jesus arrested. They, they arrest him and then Peter. And I'm sure, I'm sure as he started into this part, Mark tried to talk him out of telling this part. But then Peter tells us this. Everyone, including Peter himself, everyone deserted him and fled. And this was understandable because it was over. As fun as it had been, it was over. He was clearly no king. There would be no kingdom. And it was obvious in that moment that in spite of everything that Jesus had taught, that actually the kingdom of God was not near. That actually God certainly was not near. Now, what happens next in the story here is fascinating because Peter gives us all sorts of details about the trials that Jesus is gonna go through, right? He talks about who was there. He talks about uh, what was said, how they went back and forth between each other. Gives us details on all of it. And if you're a shrewd reader of the Bible, which I uh, choose to think most of you are, if you're a shrewd reader of the Bible, you might read through this and there might be a question that pops up. And it's a question that should pop up. The question is, how does Mark writing this down or Peter telling the story to Mark from his prison cell, how do they know what went on in the privacy of the conversations between the high priest all of the chief priests, the Pharisees, the teachers of the law, and Jesus when they're shut up in that room. How do they know this? They're telling us things that they weren't there for. Here's how. Here's how they found out what happened. Because later on, some of the very same men who questioned and persecuted Jesus in that very room, some of the very same Pharisees that had tried to trap Jesus in his words with questions in the temple, just a few days earlier, right? Some of those very same people became Jesus followers. They became Jesus followers. In fact, in the book of Acts, several of these guys show up as part of the group that is now a part of this Jesus movement. And so when they became a part of the movement, they were talking to the 12 and they said, hey guys, let us really give you some detail. I mean, you saw the big important parts of it that happened out in public, but let us fill you in on what happened behind the scenes on that night. So that's how they figured that out, right? And so, you know, the, these, these people uh, to which we, you know, we should ask the question, how? How did you get to that point? How did you do those things? You know, how, how did the men who had Jesus arrested devoted themselves to having him killed? How did they become followers of Jesus? And we'll get there later. But 
After Jesus was arrested in the garden, here's what we find. Mark chapter 14, verse 53. They took Jesus to the high priest and all of the chief priests, the elders and the teachers of the law, they all came together. And these are groups of people that did not get along. There were always power struggles in between these group of people. They all didn't believe exactly the same thing, but they had found a common foe in the person of Jesus. So Peter followed him at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest. And there he sat with the guards, the very same guards that had just arrested Jesus, sat with the guards and warmed himself at the fire. Now, as Peter begins telling this part of the story, Mark, having heard him over the years talk about it, knows what's coming, right? And, and I imagine it this way, that, that I think Mark says, okay, Peter, I know what part of the story we're at. Are you sure? Are you sure you want to tell this part? Are you sure you want this written down? Because you don't realize or you don't know who's going to read this. You don't know how far this is going to spread. Are you sure you want this to be a part of your story? And I imagine Peter just chuckled and said something along the lines of, yeah, of course I'm sure I want this to be a part. Because listen, on that night, I was no hero. In fact, on that night, nobody was a hero. There was not a hero to be found. So the chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin, which was their version of the Supreme Court, were looking for evidence against Jesus so that they could put him to death. But they did not find any. Many testified falsely against him, but their statements did not agree. So eventually, the high priest who's overseeing this whole thing, right, he, he loses his temper. He realizes they're not getting to the point that he's trying to get to, right? They're getting nowhere with it. So he gets right up in Jesus's face, starts letting him know how upset he is. Here's what he says. Are you not going to answer? What is this testimony that these men are bringing against you? But Jesus remained silent and gave no answer. And this drives them crazy. And here's why it drives them crazy in the moment. Because these were the most powerful men in the city. Strike that. These were the most powerful men in the country, in the nation of Israel, right? When, when they walked through public places because of their power and their honor, the how high people thought of them, the crowds would part and make a way for them, right? They were so respected. And to find this, this Nazarene day laborer, who was now standing in front of them that would not give them the respect that they felt they deserved, right? Wouldn't even answer their questions. Just absolutely drove them crazy. They didn't even know how to respond. So here's what happened. Again, the high priest asked him, are you the Messiah, the son, the blessed one? And this was a significant moment in history. You go back to moments in history, this moment right here. And here's why. Because Jesus' destiny hung in the balance of the answer that would come out of his mouth. Right? And, and I think Peter would say, not only did Jesus' destiny hang in the balance of whatever he was getting ready to say, mine did too. 
And he would probably say to us if he were here today, so did yours in this very moment. Here's what Jesus answered when the priest asked him, are you the Messiah? I am, said Jesus. Two words, I am. And with those two words, he condemned himself. He sealed his fate. So the high priest tore his clothes. Why do we need any more witnesses, he asked. You have heard the blasphemy straight from his own lips. What do you think? And they all condemned him as worthy of death. Then some began to spit at him. They blindfolded him, struck him with their fists, fists and said, prophesy. And if we could pause in this moment, if we could pause and not allow this to just be some piece of literature that, yeah, we've read it before as we're reading it, just kind of go past and be like, okay, yeah, it's a story and I'm reading it or whatever. But, but if, we could, if we could pause and really feel what was going on inside of this room at the moment, what is happening is so unnatural and so horrible. This is kind of the part of the story of Jesus that, that we kind of pass over too quickly. Because for, for a, a group of minutes, maybe perhaps for a half an hour, I don't know, maybe perhaps for an hour or longer, they just beat and yelled at Jesus. All of that pent up anger, all of that pent up frustration, all of that pent up embarrassment they had been carrying from the way that Jesus shamed them in public. It all came pouring out in a rage in that minute and they just started beating him and everybody in the room wanted a piece. And so they just unleashed it. <laughs> and that's what happened. And then, and then the guards took him and beat him. And then before Peter gets to the next part of the story, I think one more time, just to make sure, Mark asks him, Peter, are you sure you want to keep going with this part? Are you sure? And Peter says, yes. And here's why. Because people need to know how far and how wide the grace and the mercy of our heavenly father is. Right? They need to understand that not only did Jesus come to reveal God, that, but that God is like Jesus. And the mercy and the grace that I received from my rabbi after I did what I'm getting ready to confess to doing, people need to know because they are eligible to receive that same grace and mercy. So absolutely, I'm gonna put this next part into the story because I sat here and I did the unthinkable. While, while Jesus was being interrogated, while Jesus was being beaten, I did nothing, Peter would tell us. And in fact, it was worse than nothing. I sat and I warmed myself by the fire next to the guards who had just arrested him. That's what I was doing. So yeah, Mark, let's tell the story. Verse 66, while Peter was in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came by. 
And when she saw Peter warming himself, she looked closely at him. You also were with that Nazarene Jesus, she said, but he denied it. (laughs) Peter says, not only did I deny it, but I got up and I stepped away from the fire so that my face wouldn't be as well lit so that people couldn't recognize it so easy. But this girl, as I was walking out towards the gate, she followed me. In verse 69, she said again to those standing around, this fellow is one of them. And Peter tells Mark, and then what did I do? I denied it again. I denied it again. And then all of the people who were standing around started staring at me, moving in for a closer look to make sure. And those standing near to Peter, They said to him, surely you are one of them for you are a Galilean. Which he was freaking out at the time. He didn't even offer a good defense. He could have just said, what are you talking about? It's the Passover. Tons of Galileans are in town. How does that connect me to him? But no, he was so overwhelmed at that moment that he confesses, here's what I did. He began to call down curses and he swore to them, I do not know this man, couldn't even say his name, that you are talking about. And in that moment, Off in the distance, he hears a rooster crow. And in that moment, Peter would say, I remembered that Jesus had predicted I would do the exact thing that I just finished doing. And then Mark writes these words because this is what Peter says happened. And then he, Peter, broke down and wept. And this would be the moment, like all of us have a moment, that that he would give anything to go back and undo. To go back and and be able to, to unlive this piece and correct what he had done. Now, after this, Jesus leaves his fake trials with the religious leaders. He's taken to Pilate at the time. And the reason they had to take Jesus to Pilate was because they wanted to crucify him. But, um, The Jewish people didn't have the authority to kill anyone. And this made them even more angry because it was just yet another reminder that they were not in control of their own nation, that even though they had established laws for thousands of years, they were powerless to actually enforce any of them. But Pilate loved these moments because it exalted his power when the Jewish people had to come to him to ask for something because they weren't able to do it on their own. So they take Jesus to get permission to have him executed. Chapter 15, verse three, the chief priest accused him of many things. So again, Pilate asked him, this is the third time Jesus has been asked, aren't you going to answer? See how many things they are accusing you of? But Jesus still made no reply. And Pilate was amazed. And the reason that Pilate was amazed was because that this was the moment that any other man standing before him in this situation would drop to his knees and beg for mercy. Not beg to be let go, it's too late at this point. But the mercy they would drop to their knees and beg for at this point was just a quick, painless death. That it wouldn't be drug out. But Jesus did none of that. Pilate knew As he watched the whole thing and listened to what was said, he knew Jesus hadn't done anything worthy 
of being put to death. Right, so he takes Jesus, has him flogged, thinking, man, if I bring him back out and he's all battered and bruised and just bloody and you know maybe hanging on the verge of death anyway because of this flogging, so many people end up dying a short time later as infection set in from these wounds. Maybe, maybe, maybe that will be enough for the people. Maybe. But it's not. They want him dead and they want him dead now. So Pilate asked them, what shall I do then with the one that you call king of the Jews? I've had him beaten. I've had him flogged. He may die anyway. (laughs) And of course, this phrasing, the way he presented it to him, this was another dig at the Jews because they certainly did not view him as their king. But the crowd had been stirred up by the religious leaders. People were planted in the crowd to start egging people on and everything. Here's their response. Crucify him, they shouted. And as you know, because we all know how this story ends, Pilate decided to give the crowd exactly what they wanted. So the soldiers led Jesus away into the palace and called together the whole company of soldiers. Now to have a good understanding of context of what's getting ready to happen next, it's important to know who these soldiers were. These weren't a Roman legion. These weren't Roman citizens, these soldiers that were taking them. Because uh, we know from extra biblical sources around history of that time, that Pilate uh, had around him what were called Roman auxiliaries. And those were basically uh, men from the region surrounding the area that were brought into service to serve as soldiers for Pilate. And that's important to know because Romans, if they were brought in being soldiers, they didn't care a lick about who Jesus was. People from the surrounding nation hated the Jews. The idea of a new Jewish king and kingdom was disgusting to them. And so they were going to take the opportunity to do what we see next. This is what explains the violence and the hatred that we see towards Jesus. Verse 17, they put a purple robe on him and then twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on him. And I feel like set is a little too light of a word. And they began to call out to him, hail king of the Jews. Again and again, they struck him on the head with a staff and spit on him. And when they had mocked him, They took off the purple robe and laid his own clothes on him on the back with those wide open wounds. Then, then they brought Jesus to a place called Golgotha. And what came next was a simple singular line that we see recorded in our gospel. And it was a simple line that for first century men and women meant so much. To us, not nearly as much. But here it is. They brought Jesus to the place called Golgotha. And they crucified him. Now, no details are given. Peter doesn't give the details. Mark doesn't write any down. And here's why. Because no details were needed in the first century. Right, Everybody that heard Peter's story in person and everybody who would read this account in the first and second century had seen a crucifixion for themselves. 
They had seen the aftermath. They had smelled the aftermath. That one sentence gave them all of the information that they needed to understand what happened to Jesus. And even still, in our modern portrayals of crucifixions, I mean, there's still a tendency for us to glamorize it. To even really, and I hope this doesn't seem like a weird word to put on it for you, but there's a tendency for us to romanticize the whole thing. But there was nothing romantic about it. Here's, here's what we do know. We know that in that moment, when God, even though nobody could see it in the moment, when God was most glorified, we would have been the most horrified. In that moment, when God was doing the unthinkable for you and me, the thing that you and I could do nothing to deserve, we would have turned our faces away and been in horror. But the crowd wasn't finished yet. Verse 29, so you are going to destroy the temple and build it up in three days, they yelled at him. Come down from the cross and save yourself. Then they said something next. They said something of which they really had absolutely no idea of the significance of the words that were coming out of their mouth. And as Peter was standing in the back of the crowd watching the whole thing happen, Peter had no idea the significance of what was being said. But here's what they shouted. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. And 30 years later, as Peter is recounting this story to Mark, he must have smiled because at that point, looking back with the advantage of hindsight, knowing how everything played out after that, he understood the significance of those words, right? Jesus's desire to save others was the precise reason why he did not choose to save himself. But they still weren't finished. Here's what they said. Let the Messiah, let this Messiah, this King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. And I imagine, I imagine that Peter, he, he just must have thought, as he reflected on those days, that he must have thought, I, I had no idea how significant those words were when they were being spoken. No idea. I mean, see and believe See and believe. The truth was that two days later, what he would see would cause him to continue to believe 30 years later that Jesus was exactly who he claimed to be. And then Peter tells us that the, the strangest thing happened. This man who he had watched speak to the wind and the waves this man who he had watched command nature became a victim of nature himself. Verse 33, at noon, darkness came over the whole land. At three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, my God, my God. And then he asked a question that no one in the moment had an answer to. 
nobody. And everybody listening would have been, yeah, that's a really good question. Here's what Jesus said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But as Peter's telling this story 30 years later, he has a clear answer to that question. In fact, in a letter that he had written a few years earlier to a group of Christians, he gives us the answer outright to this question. We find it in 1 Peter chapter 2. Peter writes this, He himself, talking about Jesus, bore our sins in his body on the cross. That's why. Because God placed Peter's sin, he placed your sin, he placed my sin on the person of Jesus. And the father withdrew from the son, and don't miss this, this is so important. He withdrew from the son and allowed him to take on our sins so that he could draw near to us. It had to happen that way. But in the moment when this took place, nobody could see that. Nobody understood that. And Jesus in that moment died alone. And then Peter says, I'll never forget. I'll never forget. Back to Mark. With a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. And Peter says to Mark, the thing is, we didn't even know it at the time. We found out later. But when Jesus breathed his last, at that very moment, something absolutely extraordinary happened at the temple. It was like God was giving a, a, a divine visual aid, right? It was sort of divine vandalism, if you will. Because here's what took place at that very moment. Verse 38, the curtain was torn in two from top to bottom. Now there were two curtains in the temple. There was an outer curtain that all of the people could see and then there was an inner curtain that divided off the Holy of Holies on the inside. And we're not told which one of those curtains was actually torn. But it didn't matter. The point was the same. The idea was the same. Right? Now, now there were, uh, were, were... A new order had come. That was the message. Something greater than the temple and the temple system was here. That was the message. Something greater than Moses. Something greater than the Sabbath. Something greater than the prophets. This whole thing, which is where the center of how Jewish people connected with God. God was saying, this thing is done. There is a new way. And not only is it new, but it's better. And it is all-encompassing. There would be no more separation between God and man. And in that moment, the new covenant between God and everyone had been ratified. It was in effect. And everyone is invited to participate. Peter he would look at Mark and if he were here, he would look at you and I, he would probably say, listen, I got precisely what I didn't deserve through all of this. And, and, and what's most interesting 
is that when Peter wrote his reason, his answer for why did God forsake Jesus, when he wrote it, he, he included himself in the verse. Go back and look at what he had written in the letter. He himself bore, not your sins, he bore our sins. Peter includes himself. And here's the most fascinating thing of all. Don't, don't miss this. Peter did not learn this from the Bible. Peter experienced this personally. He experienced face-to-face forgiveness. He experienced face-to-face restoration. And the message of Peter is absolutely clear. That same forgiveness that I experienced, that same reconciliation that I experienced, that is available to you. Which indeed is good news. This is why, this is why the message of Jesus throughout his ministry was so simple. The time has come, the kingdom has come near. Repent and believe in this Good news. Once you've seen Jesus, you've seen the Father. And the Father says, listen, listen, I know that your past may always remind you of failure. But from my perspective, your past does not define you and your past does not limit you because of what my son did for you on the cross that day. Now, that's not the end of Peter's story. As Jesus breathed his last and is hanging on the cross, but we're going to take a pause and we're going to finish this narrative at a later date. But for now, know this, that your past, whatever it involves, does not define you or limit you. Because you are invited into something new. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I, I am so overwhelmed with just everything that happened and what it means. The implications of what it means for us 2,000 years later in our relationship, our approach, our understanding of our perspective of you. Lord, please, for those of us who struggle with this, as this is for many people such a part of their struggle with their faith, God, allow us to see you as the way that Jesus represented you, full of mercy and grace And that the things you went through was not to lord it over us or to be a judge of us, but to draw us closer. God, let us know that no matter what we've been through in the past and how dark moments look in the present, you are not far. And I thank you. Thank you for your mercy and for your grace you've bestowed upon us. In your name, amen. Amen. Thank you so much for joining us this week. I hope you all have a great week and look forward to uh, being back together again next Sunday.